This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. Today on the podcast, we have Tom Kalos, one of those rare teachers who's respected in traditional martial arts and combat sports, what I call a truly progressive teacher. Hi, Tom. Hi, Tom. Hey, thank you for having me on the podcast. So we thought you'd be the perfect person to bring on to discuss the uh, changing landscape of martial arts here in the U.S. Yeah, well, I, I spent a lifetime, my adult life, uh, teaching, running schools, and then uh, just by chance and because of the success of my schools and my relationship with uh, Master Ernie Reyes and our organization that I was a part of, I was invited to come speak nationally. And so then I started focusing on how to help other instructors do what they do better, more ethically, with better results. Uh, and that's been my life's work for about 30 years. And just recently, I retired uh, my business that was a consulting firm uh, because I've gone back to school and I'm going to, I'm pursuing life as an artist. And, uh, you know, after so many years of being a martial artist, uh, I've ruined my body a little bit. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to do the less strenuous uh, work of training for fun and uh, doing art to communicate and, and be involved in things that I care about. So just to go back a little bit, how old were you when you first started training in the martial arts? Well, I took my first martial arts lesson uh, in judo in 1969. I was uh, gallivanting around the community that I lived in, which was outside of Reno. It was a decommissioned Air Force base, and they had a gym. And uh, I walked in the gym one day, and there were six or seven guys doing judo. And they were all adults. And so I sat there and watched and I had watched the Green Hornet and and had been you know and enthusiastically inspired by Bruce Lee and you know so I that was 64 that I think that launched but in 69 I saw these guys practicing judo I hung around they invited me on the mat at the end of the class and taught me some break falls and rolling and you know I showed up a few more times and and got lessons on the side for and, and started throwing my little sister and little brother on the bed, you know, mimicking what I'd seen in classes. And then I got some Bruce Tegner books and my friends and I, you know, started mimicking those things and, and fighting. And, and then my family moved closer to town and I joined a Taekwondo school when I was 11 in 1971 and uh, got my first degree black belt eight years later in 1979. That's interesting because it seems like now with Taekwondo, it normally doesn't take people eight years to get a black belt. It seems like it happens rather quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't always think it's good. Uh, I think that uh, the commercial aspects of running school and trying to sell the idea of being a black belt has caused some problems. It doesn't mean that there aren't people like BJ Penn, for example, who in a very short period of time, you know, showed such a high level of skill and understanding of the game that, he was ready to compete against black belts and be a black belt. Not everybody progresses that fast. And we've lost a little something uh, 
in Taekwondo, especially, and maybe other, some other karate styles where uh, black belt has become a sales tool and has the training for it has been accelerated and the standards have been lowered. And uh, however, I think that jujitsu in general has brought that, you know, a new lens to that. And we look at black belt differently. And I remember taking Keenan into a Taekwondo school once and he was, he'd already been training for a few years and we saw some, I don't know, nine or 10 year old black belts. And he looked at me like, dad, what's the, what's that about? <laughs> Cause he had a whole different idea of what black belt was, you know? And I said, oh, you know, it's just something that's happened in the industry. So. So when you started in both judo and taekwondo, what was the belt structure like? Were there as many belts? How long did you have to stay in each rank roughly? You know, I, I can't speak for the judo training because I took just a few classes. And then later I took classes under the same teachers who were teaching in town at the YMCA, but uh, I never progressed beyond white belt and, and got more involved in uh, the kicking and punching aspect of it. And there were seven or eight belts in Taekwondo and, and testing was once or twice a year, as I remember it. And you didn't progress very fast. I remember using dye to change my belt from, you know, green to blue or redying a white belt. You know, it was hard to get belts. And I remember my instructor used to send off the results of testing as he saw it to his instructor, a Korean gentleman in uh, Montana. And then we'd have to wait and wait and wait for it to come back and the certificates. And it was a test of patience. And, you know, they, and they, my instructor didn't give black belts typically to kids under 18. And so I waited, I was 19 when I tested and uh, it was a long journey, but, you know, I think uh, it was worthwhile. And it, it seems to these days that people don't understand the importance of waiting, you know, uh, but jujitsu is like that. I've been in jujitsu 22 years. So I'm still a brown belt. So <laughs> I, I guess that's uh, par for the course, you know. So to circle back, uh, we kind of fast forwarded through this, but you mentioned two names, BJ Penn and Keenan Cornelius. So can you explain a little bit about who Keenan Cornelius is and how you know BJ Penn? Well, uh, I, so in 1994, I was in pretty serious pain, a lot lower back pain. I didn't recognize yet that my hips were the cause of it, but I knew I had something that wasn't right. And it was taking some of the fun out of teaching. And I thought, well, what else can I do? that I want to do that inspires me. And I thought about being a writer. And so I started looking at colleges uh, like in Iowa and, and Fayetteville, Arkansas had a good writing program. And so did uh, Oxford, Mississippi. It was funded by John Grisham. And I thought, you know, I can do anything. I'm going to go back to school. And so I started thinking about how I could get my top guy who'd been with me for a decade to manage the schools while I went off for a four-year college adventure. And that eventually turned into a sale because I just didn't think I was going to come back to Reno. I thought I had a vision of what my life would be like as I worked on becoming a writer. And so we negotiated that into a sale. And in 1994, I arranged the sale of my schools. And my first wife said, you know, I don't really want to do this. And so we ended up splitting up and she took one and I sold the other school that I have and, and partnerships in other schools that I had. And I got a call from I was on the board of directors of a company called Educational Funding Company, which at the time was 
probably the preeminent source for business information in the martial arts community. It was a billing service. And the owner of that company called me and said, listen, I've got an old friend in, in, on the big Island who's got to go get another heart surgery. And the last heart surgery he had a school kind of fell apart. Can you go over there since you're, you know, in a period between selling your schools and, and doing a, going back to school and just keep an eye on the school for a couple months while he goes through the surgery in Bethesda and then comes back and, you know, he, you can use his apartment, you can use his, his uh, car, you know, he, you just have to supervise his staff. And so I, it was just perfect timing. So I said, sure, the big Island. Yeah, I'll go. And that turned into a seven year residency there. And then another seven years later, while I was there, I started, I'd already started training in jujitsu. I took my first lessons with Dave Kovar from, uh, who's a Sacramento instructor and a friend of mine, lifetime friend, uh, from Half and Caesar Gracie and some of their black belts that were visiting from Brazil. And they were, they had a pilot program in Sacramento. And I, after selling my schools and splitting up with my wife, I went to live in my, where I was born in Sacramento for in transition while I applied to colleges. And so, and I took those lessons and then went to Hawaii and took some lessons at the Helsinki Gracie Academy on another island. And then there was one blue belt on the big island. He was a cop and he had to drive in from a place called Kau all the way to Kona, which was like a two hour drive. And we would meet two times a week. And at the time I thought he was, you know, I just thought he was like a God, you know, cause he could just clean my clock. But now I look back, I realize he was a real neck cranker and, uh, you know, just had the most rudimentary of skills, but I started training with him and, you know, practicing what I knew with local Tang Sudo and Taekwondo people. And then I moved up to Waimea and in Waimea, there were a couple judo black belts that I trained with. And I remember the first workout, the second, one of the guys was a big guy and I couldn't defeat him. He was just lay on top of me and I was squished and didn't know how to escape. But the other guy had been a, was a second Don had been training for 15 or more years. And I tapped him out repeatedly. And it really ruined his psyche. <laughs> he may have quit judo. I don't know. But I had just like a few months, right? And then I uh then I met a gal that I and we ended up moving to live in Hilo. And that gal was Keenan Cornelius's mom. And we were married for 20 years. We split up a few years ago. But uh so Keenan was when I met Keenan, he was four. But what the first day that I came to the to Hilo, uh, I had been off island. I'd been in Sacramento and uh, Keenan's mom had made an arrangement to rent a house and I was going to pay for it. So I called the landlord. She gave me his number and said, you know, arranged everything and made sure he got his payment. And then I flew back to Hilo to see the house. And I first thing I did, she'd already set up phone service. So I plugged in the phone and not five minutes later, the phone had rang because 10 minutes earlier, I'd put up a flyer in the local gym advertising for people who were grapplers, wrestlers, judo. There was no jujitsu on the island except that blue belt who lived now three or four hours away. So BJ or one of his brothers had seen the flyer, taken it home to his dad. I plug in the phone. I get a call and I think, how do I know this guy's voice? I don't know anybody in this town. And it turned out it was BJ's dad who I'd rented the house from who was calling saying, Hey, we found this flyer and we're interested. So BJ and his brothers became my first training partners there. And I, 
I remember approaching them in the first class saying, guys, I don't know a lot. I mean, I know how to train. I've been a martial artist a long time. This is a new thing for me. I know some stuff. I'm going to show you that stuff. And we'll look for people who know more and we'll just, but let's train with what we know. And that was my first step in training. I knew how to do the warm-ups. I knew how to do arm bars, you know, escape from the guard and, you know, some mount stuff. And, but there was so much I didn't know. And I remember BJ telling me later, he said, man, you, you ruined so many t-shirts. Cause I used to reach around, right. Grab the front of the t-shirt and just crank that thing around their neck, you know, to try to keep these kids off me. And uh, that was how jujitsu started in again in Hilo because Hilo had been a center for jujitsu and other martial arts for many years. Uh, Okazaki, uh, Henry S. Okazaki was uh, had moved there in nineteen, I think, oh four or nineteen fourteen, and he was taking lessons. And he went on to uh, one of BJ's coaches, Rudy Valentino, showed me some flyers that he had. Uh, announcing fights between Okazaki and boxers, you know, in a ring in downtown Hilo, you know, way ahead of his time, very progressive. And uh, I knew that I was walking in his footsteps there, but the jujitsu had kind of died out. And uh, even there were some judo clubs in town. And funny story is uh, BJ had been training with me for about a year before I introduced him to Half. But one day BJ comes to my little school I'd started there and says, oh, man, my friends and I, we went over to some judo schools and we tapped out the instructor. <laughs> I'm like, no, man, don't do that. <laughs> but, you know, these kids didn't have, you know, they didn't have the training and they were just enthusiastic and raw. And they, I remember walking over to BJ's house, which it was his dad's house at the time. And, and it was just a three or four doors down from where I was living. And I was going over to say hi or set up training for the next day or whatever. And I I'm going down to the basement where I know BJ is and I open the door and I start to walk down and I hear this ruckus. And so I peek down and these guys have got mattresses up against the wall. They've got gloves on and they're just going at each other full on UFC. Right. So I tiptoed back up the stairs <laughs> and I closed the door and I'm like, I'm not doing that with these, you know, 14, 15, 16 year olds, you know, I'm too smart for that. So they were really into it. And, uh, they BJ never missed a workout. He showed up every single time and was a good student. And Keenan was only four at the time. And so I started training him in just the basics of Taekwondo and the basics of what I knew of jujitsu. And he didn't really catch on the catch the bug until he was uh, 14 or so when he was in high school and uh, joined the wrestling team and realized he had a leg up from all that he had learned. And it was his first time in public school. He had been a homeschooled kid. And so it really gave him some esteem and somebody hassled him and he took him down. And, you know, it was just typical teenage stuff. But after that, Keenan caught fire and wanted to uh, train every day. And I, my stuff was limited. I was still progressing, but Keenan had just was surpassing me. And, and he, plus he was, YouTube had been born. And so he was, you know, learning more jujitsu from YouTube than I could teach him. So we had Marcos Terragrosa, uh, who is one of uh, Casio Vernick's black belts, who now runs his own organization. He, I would pay him to come up a couple times a week or once a week, I can't remember now, to my little dojo in Placerville, which was really an office that had enough space to have mats because I had launched a, a consulting firm and some other endeavors in the martial arts community. So I needed an office outside of the house. And we had enough room to have a dojo so we had jujitsu and i had a capoeira teacher who came in and we had a 
Aikido program. It was kind of collective. And Keenan started bringing his friends over and training. And then then he wanted me to take him down to Casio's. So I started taking him down to Casio's. Well, gas was going to $5 a gallon. And it was uh, all my kids were getting ready to go to college. So that was would be four or five cars to and from the, the 40 miles. And you know, every time I went down to take Casio, Tim to Casio's, I would, I would train. Sometimes I wouldn't. But I, I ended up blowing out 100 bucks just on food and, you know, which is not out of the realm of any parent. You know, you can just walk out your front door and rip a hundred dollar bill into little pieces and throw it into the wind every time you <laughs> set out. But, and the, and the market, it was dropping out in real estate. I mean, it was really tanking. This is 2008 or nine. And so I said, why don't we go back to Hilo where we're all comfortable. Uh, Keenan was born in Hawaii and we, uh, we've got BJ right there. We can, you know, we'll get a place downtown. He can ride his bike to the dojo. He'll get quality instruction. You can go, uh, my ex was going back to college and the university's right there in Hilo. So it just seemed convenient. So we went back and spent another seven years in Hawaii until uh, Keenan had surpassed uh, the quality of instruction that he was hoping for and started looking uh, nationally for a coach or a school to join where he could go to the next place. And, you know, cost to go compete uh, on the mainland was, you know, a lot for a teenager and, uh, and his dad. And so I, I think he thought if he went back to the mainland, he'd have more access to competitions. And they were few and far between on the islands. And to fast forward now, Keenan is one of the most decorated Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitors ever. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, unbelievable that in my path, on my path as a martial arts teacher, that I have these two people that I started that are just phenoms. And uh, I think some of that was luck. And then a lot of it was just that, that I was just immersed in the martial arts lifestyle. I sought out instructors, I collected students, I trained as often as I was able. And that was just my lifestyle. And so if you were around me, you were exposed to it a lot. And, uh, but but the, I th I think it's luck too luck of the the Greeks you know that these two kids went on to be such influencers and uh, have such phenomenal careers I don't you know BJ's winding down and retiring and Keenan you know probably has another twenty years but it's interesting how both Keenan and BJ are known as people who were willing to travel the world to find the instruction they needed and it sounds very similar to what you did. <laughs> Yeah, that was my thing. You know, uh, I was going to Ernie Reyes's, my instructor's uh, 50th birthday, and he's just recently turned 70. And so I talked to BJ's dad and I said, you know, Mr. Penn, I'm going to go to my instructor's birthday. And, you know, how Gracie school is just down the street. Why don't, why doesn't BJ come with me and we'll go and I'll go introduce him and take him in for some workouts where, you know, the, the quality of instruction is pretty high. And uh, so that was the first time BJ had ever been on a plane, <laughs> a, a plane uh, to the mainland. And uh, so we went to Ernie Reyes's 50th birthday party and celebrated. And then I took him over to house. And the, I think, uh, who is it that runs guerrilla jujitsu? Dave, David Camarillo. Yeah, David was there and some other, you know, now martial arts legends. I don't remember who it was, but a lot of those guys stuck with it. And uh, we went to work in the, in the mats and BJ had this incredible flexibility and this uh, inherent understanding of the, of 
the movement like Keenan does. You know, Keenan just, I've been training all these years with so many good people and jujitsu is still a mystery to me. Like, why don't I know that? What, how did I forget that? You know, and some people just take to it. It's, I don't know if it's part of the brain or their mechanical, you know, Keenan's uh, uh, birth father's uh, was going to school to be an engineer. I think he has an aptitude for math and maybe, maybe Keenan inherited that, but it's something that I'm missing. You talked about how you trained all the Penn brothers, but at what point did you realize that BJ was special and that if you want to take it to the next level, he might have to seek it from someone who knows more about jujitsu than you? I, I knew that I, you know, I knew that he was surpassing me and, uh, I didn't know enough and, you know, I wasn't threatened by it. I just told the guys I knew, you know, I know what I know and I'll, I'll learn more as we go along and we'll find a coach and, and, uh, all the boys were at different stages of their life. Reagan was a little bit uh, younger. I think, uh, the two J's were older. They were having to make a living, you know, they were going to school. And so BJ was just at that age where he had the interest and aptitude to be there consistently. And Reagan was pretty much there 99% of the time, but, uh, they were all very physically talented. I remember that the old, uh, JD, not the oldest, but the second of the oldest came over from the mainland and he had started training or not from the mainland, but from Oahu and had been training at Helsons, taking some lessons. And he came in and just whipped me up, you know, I mean, these guys were strong and flexible and fast. And I was, I was struggling with my hips, you know, trying to figure out what was going on and why I was in pain a lot. And I was doing the best I could. And I think my hips have, you know, been my major I might have been a much better jujitsu player, but I wore out my hips early. And when that's done, it's done. And the, the replacements lasted for 15 years and they gave me a second life. But I recognized that, you know, I was fighting with a handicap. And so I did the best I could and I had a lot of fun and I really enjoyed, you know, I've enjoyed the martial arts all my life and have continued to do so. And, but these kids were really talented and they were ready to move to somebody else. So uh, knowing Half and Caesar, as I did uh, through Mr. Reyes, it was a great opportunity for them. And then BJ's dad was worried about BJ. You know, he was kind of a street kid. He, their family is affluent, but, you know, Hilo was, you know, on the edges. And so this was a great outlet for him. And his dad had actually approached me before I started teaching BJ and explained to me that he'd been a judo player and that he really respected the martial arts and he thought it would be really good for his son or sons. And so that was his, you know, behind the scenes maneuvering to get BJ into something that was really positive. And he respected and appreciated the martial arts for what it is. And by that time I'd already been teaching. I'd started helping my teacher teach at about 13. And so I was in my thirties by that time. So I was kind of a veteran teacher. I'd graduated lots of black belts and been deeply immersed in the martial arts game as we knew it at that time. So how did you decide that teaching martial arts was what you wanted to do with your life, or at least for a long period? Because you started at 13, and that might have been just for fun. But how did you know that would become such a big part of your life? Or did it just happen organically? Nah, one of those things, man, I, I just walked into that dojo one day, it was it was in a professional building in an office building. And I walked in and I saw the class and something clicked in my head. And I, I knew that you know, my inner David Carradine, you know, said, I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to do. And I knew from the first day and I just pursued it like that. And I, I didn't have a lot of other things going on. I had, 
uh, we had came from a family of seven children. My dad and uh, stepmom worked, you know, as hard as you have to work to have seven kids, you know. And uh, so I was kind of on my own. So and there wasn't a lot going on. I wasn't really. I wasn't doing well academically. I just was bored and I ate too much candy and God knows what it was, you know. And so the martial arts just clicked for me. And I and this the dojo that I went to had the key to the dojo on a string that you could reach through the mail slot in the door. So you could go anytime, grab that key, open the door, and be in the dojo. And I practically lived there and I cut I cut quite a bit of school to be there in the daytime. So it was a good environment for me. You mentioned earlier about how Keenan was watching YouTube videos, and it seems like that's such a big part of martial arts now to get inspired by YouTube. Your version of that sounded like the Green Hornet. Back then, people got inspired by TV shows, not so much uh, YouTube. What was it about Green Hornet and Bruce Lee that really attracted you to even try martial arts or even go watch it? I didn't really understand that at that time, but the the figure that Bruce Lee played in uh, the Green Hornet was much like any, you know, sidekick uh, superhero type thing. You know, he he was a an archetype. You know, the one that was capable. And you know, so whether it was westerns and John Wayne or or Bruce Lee in that film, but I had some kid friends who were into you know, had found some books on judo. And so we all kind of just practiced what we could get from the Bruce Tegner books and from other judo manuals around. And then I, of course, I took, I found that judo class. And so it just seemed like the right thing for me. And I, I think it appeals to kids who maybe feel vulnerable or, you know, wish they, you know, had more power or, or more, uh, strength or the ability to feel safe in a world that sometimes is a little scary. So just appealed to me. And I, uh, fortunately the class was close by the instructor kind of took me under his wing because I didn't have a lot of money. I paid for my own lessons by mowing lawns and, you know, doing babysitting and stuff like that. And, uh, but I, uh, Kung Fu had just come out, uh, not too much longer after I started and, uh, wait, Kung Fu, the TV show yeah, <laughs> for people who might not know. Yeah. And that was hugely inspiring. In fact, I just happened to find it on Netflix about a week ago and I watched the first episode and I wept because I, I realized having, and I hadn't seen it for all those years. I saw the first one and then I haven't seen it since. And I watched the series when it was on TV, but uh, I realized how important that was to what I thought about uh, the, even the TV friendly Asian, you know, uh, philosophy and the archetypes that were played by the wise monks and the the searching student and the injustice of you know the prejudice and all that it just meant a lot to me and I didn't I wasn't able to filter it as a kid I just swallowed it and so I walked everywhere barefoot you know I I, I was going to wander the world I came <laughs> but, but I I got hungry and so. Uh, but anyway, I was very fortunate to have an instructor who was who's still alive, who I talk to just about every week, uh, in near nearing eighty now, and he was thirty when I met him, or twenty nine, and uh, he was aware enough to see that I, you know, and I, I wasn't the only kid that he helped, but you know, he gave me a place, and fortunately, the people there in the school and the philosophy of Taekwondo at the time uh, 
was about uh, courtesy and integrity and person. You know, and nobody else was talking this language to me. I mean, my dad was, but who listens to their dad, right? Till they're till they're <laughs> dead, you know. Then you have more conversations with them than when they're alive. But so it was a good environment for a kid who needed some heroes and felt. And I had a like many kids who start the martial arts, be it jujitsu or whatever. I had a an imagination about what I was going to be. I mean, I thought I was going to be Bruce Lee. I thought those skills as they were portrayed on in Fist of Fury and Enter the Dragon, I thought those were real and that that was what I was going to moving towards. And so it, you know, it was as good of, it was good a catalyst for continuing training as anything else. You mentioned both Bruce Lee as Cato, I believe, in the Green Hornet, as well as the TV show Kung Fu. When did you think martial arts really entered the American consciousness as far as mainstream representation? I don't, you know, I, I, we all know that there was a surge around Kung Fu, the TV show, around Ninja Turtles, around Enter the Dragon. And uh, I recognized that it was, you know, more people knew about it. But I'm not, I'm not certain that that hadn't started a long time before. You know, Teddy Roosevelt had a dojo in the White House and judo got a lot of press. And, and uh, it's, it's been kind of a subculture uh, since that time. So we, you know, media has, certainly helped uh, mystify and spread the martial arts. But it's all those military guys coming back from Korea and Okinawa and Japan, and uh, they had taken lessons there and they spread what they knew. And and uh, then there was an influx of Korean Americans starting around Jun Ri's time uh, in the 1950s. And I think they, it just caught on slowly. And you know, the martial arts school it's not like a laundry, you know, people don't start laundries because they're passionate about cleaning other people's under undies and stuff, but people will start martial arts schools and they can run without making a profit or they can run in their garage because they're passionate about it. They love the way it makes them feel and they feel like they're doing something worthwhile. So there were a lot of schools that weren't businesses, but nevertheless had students and taught and charged for lessons and were able to survive because of the passion of the people running the school because of their interests. And, you know, they'd work all day and go run their school at night. And that really helped spread the martial arts. So that in the media, and of course, Bruce Lee had a huge impact and still does today. In fact, I live here in Boise and Linda Lee lives here in Boise too, coincidentally. Every time there was a little boom, did you notice the way the business of martial arts was being run? Did you see it change a little bit with this new influx? Or would you say there has been eras in martial arts in the U.S. where maybe the culture kept shifting? I think it goes without saying that most martial arts schools saw an influx in business due to big media releases like End of the Dragon or the Ninja Turtles movies. or And I, I certainly did. Didn't wasn't so hard to find people. And I had a big sign that said Taekwondo in my school. And, and really, people thought it was a restaurant for a long time. So until you know, the media, the constant uh, uh, release of martial arts stuff and, you know, Charlie's Angels, whatever it was, everybody was doing it and it helped, you know, people came in, but they came in with ideas perpetuated by the media. And so what most martial arts schools do is very different than that. And, it, but it helped, it helped get people to come in the door. And if you could sell them after that and keep them in classes, you did good. But it raises a philosophical question, it seems like, where what does a teacher do? 
do they convert the student and teach them the ways of their martial art or do they cater themselves to what the students are looking for? Well, this goes in every industry, right? From a restaurant, uh, the restaurant industry, the food service industry, writing, writers, you know, do I, do I write what's on my mind or do I cater to an audience because I need to make a living? But let's not forget that 99.9% of the martial arts teachers who open their schools are not fully educated. They don't really get it yet. They don't have the time under their belt. They don't have the experience and the failures. They haven't interacted with enough people to really know how to impart. Plus, you know, most uh, most men don't even have full frontal brain lobe development until they're what, 23 or 24. I started my school at 21. And uh, there's an, a maturation that goes on. And, you know, we think the martial arts teacher teaches a student. It's not like that. The, te- the students teach the teacher as much as the teacher teaches the students. So I was, I was uh, executive director of the Penn Hawaii Youth Foundation, uh, BJ's nonprofit, for a short time while I was in Hilo. And I started teaching these at-risk youth, and there were about 20 of them. And I started off explaining that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm teaching 20 at-risk youth. And after I taught them for a while, I said, oh, I'm, I've got 20 kids who are helping one at-risk adult. <laughs> You know, <laughs> so uh, when you talk about, hey, you know, these martial arts teachers, do they adjust to teaching what they know, philosophy? And, you know, it's as if they really are cemented in what they know and, and they have, you know, this this incredible background of information and they're going to impart down. Do they compromise to, to appeal to the public or do they teach what they traditionally know? Well, most of them are just kids or and a lot of them are as dumb as dirt, you know, so. It just takes a while to get it and to understand where you're wasting your time and where it's a good investment of time. And uh, one of the big epiphanies that I had as a teacher, I can remember it specifically, is one day I was bragging to my ex about all my black belts and how good they were and how you know they could do anything physically and they were superstars. And she, she just flatlined it and said, well, yeah, but look at them now. It's true, you know, like they didn't, some of them did okay, but some of them were tending bar, you know, doing things that I, that I didn't think I groomed them for. And I thought, you know, yeah, if I guess if I could go back and do it again and know what they were going to face and uh, the hardships of the market and, you know, get, get, give them something that they could really use in their life besides kicking and punching athletic performance. Maybe I'm old enough now that I would that I would steer them in another direction. So I think that's the the story of most instructors when they run their school. So when you ask, gee, should they shape their, what they know to their students liking just to pander or appeal or have a successful business, I have to look back and say, you know, they don't really know that much and they're not really master teachers yet. You know, you've got to, you know, some people are born with certain skills. So yeah, there are probably some people who just come into it and, are already enlightened and are just moving in that direction. The, the, the chess champions and the, you know, the, the extreme athletes who just like BJ, who just take to it, but most of us have to take the long, hard road. So I don't know if we're catering to the public and, and what they think they want, or we're just doing what it takes to learn how to teach the best of the best of what we're capable of and make a difference. You know, we start, most of us start 
as really hardcore athletes, you know, and I, like I started my school so I could have sparring partners because I wanted to go fight on the circuit, which meant so much to me, you know, for some reason I wanted to get rated in karate illustrated ratings, you know, cause they rated in every state, the top competitors. And I needed guys to fight with. And I, I couldn't afford to go join another school and I didn't really respect any of the teachers that much, although I should have. So I just started my own thing and I beat up everybody who came in and then, you know, went through the consequences of that and to, to keep the rent being paid, I had to adjust. And, you know, it's not the, the teacher who's the leader, the teacher is the servant and the students help the teacher learn how to communicate what's best about being a martial artist, which really is just another way for saying what's best about being a human being. And the teacher put in his position or her position is just like the student, you know, who's put in, who puts themselves in a certain position to take instruction. It's not much different. Uh, maybe it's the blind leading the blind, but you know, when you, when put in charge, I think uh, Dave Kovar told me that he heard uh, Schwarzkopf say that he wouldn't put in charge or when take command or something, you know, so there's something that's going on with the teacher. They're learning, you know, and feedback's a great thing. You know, it's like going bowling, you know, you, you put the ball in your hand and you approach the thing and you get to have instant feedback. Well, when you're teaching students, you know, you start with 30 and the next day you have three, that's instant feedback. You get to watch the pins drop <laughs> and you get to change your approach. So there's learning going on on both sides. And most of the people who say they know what they're doing don't really know what they're doing, but they will through enough practice. So your first experience with the martial arts has been through mainstream representation and you got to do judo, taekwondo, and even it sounds like karate. But nowadays, a lot of kids are introduced to martial arts from fighting and UFC and MMA in general. Do you think that being exposed to multiple martial arts at the same time or having the emphasis be simply on fighting is a detriment, a positive, or a mix of both? Yeah, I don't think it's much different today than it was in the past. We all wanted to fight. We all wanted to protect ourselves. You know, it's, there's a lot more information available and people kids can come kids come in already knowing what an arm bar is right they already know a sidekick and a back kick they didn't know any of that stuff back in the day and uh but I, I don't think it's a detriment i think that it's up you know if, if somebody comes in with an interest that's a good thing and it's really up to the teacher to cultivate that interest and to because martial arts has this ability to integrate the whole person mentally physically and emotionally you know and so it has it speeds up learning and if you you know the real i guess the weight of the journey is not on the student alone it's on the instructor and his or her ability to to take that work and make it mean something for the student you know it's more than just kicking somebody or blocking something or winning a fight this is a tool you use in your life you know but then again a lot of instructors haven't gotten to that point yet for whatever reason. Maybe they aren't hanging out with the right folks or didn't hear the right words, or maybe their, their viewpoint of what martial arts is, you know, is, is just at where it is. It hasn't evolved or it's not ever going to evolve. But I think uh, the real weight of the growth of the martial arts isn't, you know, we get a lot of help from the media, but it's really on, uh, training instructors and that's where you hear me talk a lot about on the internet and <clears throat> when i get a voice 
about the fact that we don't have any really solid substantive teacher training programs in the martial arts community. You know, I, I've said this story many times, but I have a friend who went to go do yoga instructor training. And in this training course there, they went and actually were dissecting cadavers, you know, to learn about anatomy and physiology. This was for yoga. And in the martial arts, if you go to a convention, you know, you're learning the Ben Franklin clothes and, uh, you know, how to use cotton candy machines to open the doors for, you know, your school. I mean, it's just not the same caliber of education and it's hurt us. It's hurt us as, as an industry and, but it's, it takes work and it takes coordination and it's for some reason, and maybe it's because martial arts teachers are typically very independent souls (laughs) and having your own business is a nice thing where you're the king of, you know, your own little world. And, and I understand the value of that because I enjoyed that, that kingdom for quite a while, but maybe that's one of the reasons we haven't really organized or, but the main bodies in the martial arts haven't really yet, although there's been attempts and there are some exceptions, but they really haven't stood behind basic ethics training, basic anatomy and physiology basic uh, pedagogy, you know, just the things that would help us do what we do better. Uh, We haven't really gotten there yet, but with more money in the martial arts, with smarter people, with people being able to make a living doing teaching uh, and people like the Mendez brothers and others who have just are having an extraordinary level of success that'll eventually lead to that. Speaking of which, ethics is something that you just brought up and you talk about a lot online. I actually once did a poll and I asked people in the martial arts, is ethics a part of martial arts? And a lot of people said no. But that's something you speak a lot about and you talk about from nutrition to first aid. And I'm like, yeah, how come we don't teach first aid also? So can you speak a little bit about that? Especially like I think you've had points about the ethics of how martial arts should be even marketed and even like the ethics of martial arts teachers and martial arts ethics as it applies to even politics. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't think people used to say, why are there so many flakes in the martial arts? And I, I, and I thought about it a bit and I said, you know, it's not the martial arts. It's just people. It's every industry taking shortcuts, trying to be something you're not uh, faking it, hoping you'll make it later. You know, it's pretty prevalent in our society and it, it isn't just martial arts. And there's, there's people who do really well and are elite in their thinking and their actions. And then there's a lot of people in the periphery and people do martial arts and run schools that don't have to be profitable. They don't, they don't have to, they're just clubs and they're, you know, it, it, it allows me if I'm, if I don't have an education and I really don't have anything going on, I sweep floors in the day and I come and teach at my school at night. I'm at the head of the class. I'm telling everybody what to do. It's kind of a cool power trip, you know? And people don't know much or didn't know much about the martial arts. So you could, how many times did I attend classes that were techniques were passed off as being legit that later you go, well, that'll get you killed, you know? And uh, so I think that it's just prevalent in the world, but we, we need to do something to bring up the quality of education. It's happening, you know, I mean, it's happening, but it's just slow. And I still see the major bodies of the martial arts with some exceptions, not really stepping up for education and not really organizing the material in a way that gives new instructors a base. And I can't take a martial arts teacher, student of mine to any organization uh, with some exceptions. I think 
the Gracies are doing a good job, I think, the Valencia brothers. I think there's some people who are starting to really do basic instructor training. Ernie Reyes Sr. was exposing us to a lot of advanced ideas like that. But in general, the big organizations that that uh, sell retail gear or do this or that, they really haven't stepped up their game, need some new leadership perhaps, but we, we could do a lot better. How important do you think empathy training is for martial arts instructors? Well, it's forget about martial arts instructors. When I think martial arts, I say life. And when I think martial art artist, I think human being. There's nothing that doesn't make a better human being that wouldn't make a better martial arts teacher. Yes, we, and that's, that's kind of the goal of everybody, I think, who's awake is let, let me be more compassionate. Let me be more peaceful. Let me feel, you know, better about what I'm doing and not take advantage of others and, you know, whatever. I mean, we, we're living such a weird political time that maybe there is a 40% of the country that doesn't feel that way, but I don't know. I think that uh, empathy, compassion, kindness, these are all the the qualities of a uh, an evolved human being. So I was running this program called the Ultimate Black Belt Test. It was an experimental avant-garde uh, program where we experimented with new ideas for that people might embrace as they bring themselves and other people towards black belt rank. And so we created the, a year long program where you did all these crazy tasks. Every one of them was flexible. You know, if you had a shoulder injury and one of the, one of the requirements was 50,000 pushups, well, you didn't do 50,000 pushups, despite your shoulder, you, you adapted it into something else. The idea behind that is that you don't fit the, and we do this a lot in the martial arts, but you don't fit the shoe, the foot to the shoe. You don't cut off the toes because you only have one size shoe. You fit the, foot to the shoe, fit the shoe to the foot. That's it. So you put the, you adjust the size of the shoe to fit. And we don't often do that. We make everybody, you know, how many black belt tests have I been at where you've got these really large men or women to trying to do jump kicks must be so, so bad on their knees, their lower back. They're not made to do jump kicks. Right. But yet that was our curriculum. So everybody did it despite the result of it. Right. Or the risk, but you should be adapting that stuff. So you could adapt. So one of the requirements was that every black belt who participated, and there were well over a hundred that did, it was a one-year program, but they, they had to turn in written goals to me. And so I remember getting this set of written goals from one of the instructors had a big school, about 400 students back East. And it was all about his waist size and the car he was going to drive and how much money he was going to make and all these kind of superficial and, and valid goals. But I recognized, you know, something's missing. And so after some thought about it, I said, well, you know, I'm going to make a new requirement for the ultimate black belt test. You're going to have to profile 10, name and profile 10 living heroes, people you consider to be living heroes. And the purpose of that requirement was I recognized that the guy who'd sent me his goals probably wasn't hanging out with the right kind of people because the kind of people that I respected that were doers and movers and shakers and activists, they didn't give a squat about their, what car they drove. You know, even though that's an important goal, we don't want to drive junk. We want to esteem ourselves with, you know, I have a nice car, but I was hanging out with 
Schweitzer and Thich Nhat Hanh and Maya Angelou. And you know, these were my heroes and I was reading about them and I admired them and they affected my behavior. And I thought, well, you know, so maybe if these guys start looking, well, what they'd have to ask themselves, what is a hero? And why is somebody a hero to me? Is because they made a lot of money or, and it was, I didn't give them the heroes. They had to search out their own. So of a hundred people, uh, everybody had a different list. You know, some people were recurring on various lists, but everybody had a different list. Some of the times there were somebody they knew personally. Sometimes it wasn't. One of our participants who I'd later learned was a Grammy award-winning songwriter. He's a country music guy. And I, I don't listen to that crap. And, uh, <laughs> but he wrote Maya Angelou and said, you know, I'm in this program and you're one of my heroes. I just wanted you to know, you know, kind of a fan letter. Well, he ended up getting a call from Maya Angelou's representative and he went and stayed with his daughter at Maya Angelou's house and they wrote songs together. And this was all as a result of this idea of living heroes. And the same thing had happened to me on a couple occasions because early on in my childhood, I, I remember some, I was a reader and I wrote Ray Bradbury once and he wrote back. And so over a course of a couple decades, I had this ongoing correspondence with Ray Bradbury, which you know, I, I, I hadn't met him until much later, but he kind of inspired me. And I felt like, oh, you know, he, he came into my circle of friends and he affected my behavior. And I thought, you know, and he was encouraging. And then there was another guy, uh, Colin Fletcher, who was a famous backpacking journalist. He wrote The Complete Walker. And I, I read his book about his walk called The, the Thousand Mile Summer, where he walked from Mexico to Canada. And another one called The Man Who Walked Through Time which was about his solo trip through the Grand Canyon. And uh, I wrote him and son of a gun, he wrote back and I kept up a 20 or 30 year correspondence with him. He even helped me get an agent for a book project once. So I was, I was up on how most living heroes were accessible and I wanted them to be living because they could have a chance to actually interact with these people if they played their cards right. And so that, that's something to do with the way instructors are teaching. You know, if you're fortunate to have a good circle of friends or to, to connect yourself with people of wisdom and accomplishment, they're going to affect your behavior. And, you know, if I could give some advice to any instructor out there, you know, get your young kids to, to profile two or three living heroes and have that discussion in your school and bring those people onto the mats, you know, and, and, uh, figuratively and, it opens up all kinds of things that are as relevant to self-defense as learning how to block a, a right cross to the head, you know? How important do you think it is for instructors to be role models or as close to it as possible? I don't know. How important is it for every citizen on this planet to not just be a taker, but be a giver, you know, to, to contribute, you know, it's impossible for, I mean, it's rarely happens that one person has a significant effect on the world. I mean, there are certainly many examples of that, but most change, like Margaret Mead said, comes from uh, people who collectively move in the same direction, who, who everybody makes little contributions. And it just, you know, takes, it takes a certain mindset and a certain awareness and a certain unselfishness. So I think martial arts teachers are just the best martial arts teachers are just good people, whether they learned it 
whether they were born that way or they learned it through the school of hard knocks, you know, bring, bring me someone who, you know, now that I'm going to be 60 this year, when I look at a young person on, on the mats, I, I don't worry about any idiot can learn how to kick, punch and grapple. I mean, so many do. Right. And, uh, but I think, what can I give to this kid? How can I guide him, build a self-esteem, you know, help her have an awakening, encourage her as a writer, an author, a speaker, an activist, or a, a person of accomplishment? What can I say or do in the context of what I'm doing now that might just be that pivotal moment? You know, so many people have expressed, you know, that that pat on the back, that word from a professor, that, that encouragement. Uh, I'm taking art from a professor who had been in school to be a psychologist and what she was taking a photography class in the school. And the, one day the photographer in an analysis of the student's photography said, pointed to her picture and said, now this is a photographer's photo. And she changed her major <laughs> and she went on and now she's a professional artist. You know, you never know when you're going to say or do something that can have a lifelong impact on somebody. So should the martial arts teacher be a role model? The martial arts teacher even in a perfect world, would say, this position I've taken on is a chance for me to polish my rough edges, to be, become a more enlightened person. There's plenty of examples and lots of writing from people like Oeshaba or Musashi or any number of people who are martial arts, martial artists and, and human beings to set, to show the way. And, the, you know, the, the door is wide open that you can use your journey to improve yourself as a person and to make a contribution to the world. You don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to be an engineer. You can be a martial artist and have a profound impact on others. So it's just a given that the instructor uses his or her journey to improve and to wake up and to become a, a, a person of accomplishment, to become a person who inspires, even with all their faults, even with all your failures. And my life is littered with false starts, failures, things I shouldn't have done, stupidity. But in between all that, you know, you get these chances to be, for whatever period of time, the person someone listens to. You know, I never, as I mentioned earlier, I never listened to my dad, but I always listened to my instructor. And fortunately, they were saying a lot of the same things. Yeah, I remember going home and telling my dad, oh yeah, dad, you know, my instructor said, I, my dad must have looked at me like, well, you little son of a bitch. <laughs> Why do you listen to that guy? I'm your dad, you know, but you can't hear. Uh, you know, one of the things about martial arts is I have a really hard time learning from someone that I don't respect. So I, you know, and when I had clients who would ask me questions about how to run their scores or even today I had a dispute with someone over my opinion you know my my advice at some point is just you know go find somebody you respect enough to listen to because you're not going to listen to me for whatever reason you know whether I deserve respect or not but go find someone you listen to and that's maybe right back to your living heroes you know these are people who for whatever reason you admire them and sometimes you can hear those people when everybody else is shouting the same stuff but it doesn't get through. This reminds me of a conversation I had with you years ago. It seemed like even people within the martial arts saw a martial artist kind of like an attack dog. Like, oh, that guy's a real martial artist. And what does that mean? You know, somebody who can really just, <laughs> you could unleash on somebody, right? And so I started going around asking people in the martial arts, how would you define a martial artist? And I had asked you that question. 
And you had gone into about being a human being and really life is the dojo. But then you expanded on that and you got into explaining to me what made you a better human being. And you got into talking about Vietnam and an image you saw of a girl and some civil rights stuff. And I do recall the conversation because those images and those ideas are kind of my practice. You know, like I revisit them frequently and I'm, and I'm reminded and they're connected to so many other things, you know, that are especially in today's news cycles, you know, there's so much about social justice and, and inequality and uh, prejudice and, and you know, the, the whole mess of the world. But I think that you, you don't become a really good teacher. And I'm speaking for myself until you've had some real struggle in your life, you know, till you've faced the birth of a child and what that does to your thinking, you know, Sam, you just had a baby and, you know, everything changes after that. You're like, Oh, that's how you think about your kids. <laughs> okay. I will, you know, I mean, when I had my first child, I was like, Oh my God, this is how you feel about your kids. So I'm so sorry. I would have called every parent I ever taught their kid and apologized, you know, <laughs> because I was, I was hard on the kids and I didn't have the empathy and I didn't understand. There was no emotional connection until I had my own, you know, people would hand me their kids and I would take pictures and I'd make a face. And, but until I held my own, I didn't realize the connection between the parent and their child. And once I did, I didn't have to take any class. I mean, I came into the dojo the next day and I was a different teacher. I was transformed. And the same thing goes with the death of your loved ones. You know, my mom died this last year. My dad died at, at age of 63. Uh, this was 20 years ago. And I still can weep just by mentioning his name. Till you struggle through those things or bankruptcy or, or whatever it is that's a hardship. Now, how many of our friends have struggled with cancer? and life-threatening illnesses, you know, until you have some mileage on your tires. I don't know. I, I know that there are people who have those, that level of compassion that they're just born with it. The way some people are born with a good physique, they just get out of bed and they've got a six pack, you know, and that's it. Most of us don't have that. Uh, naturally, we have to work on those things. And I've had to work on them. I've lived a lot of my life without empathy for others or not with the deep empathy or compassion that I think I feel now, but some lesser degree of it. Now, I wasn't always a complete jerk, but there were many times when if I could go back and change the things I'd said or done, I would certainly do it. I think we can all relate. You just got to get some mileage on your tires. And so, you know, uh, the violence and the aggression and the, uh, the toughness, you know, and the hyper-masculinity that we see so prevalent isn't a martial arts thing. It's a youth thing. The cultural thing uh, that I respected people could, you know, kick ass when I was 20 uh, changes when you're 40 or 50 and you realize how futile that is and how fleeting and how destructive it can be because you've been there and done that. You can't get, you can't get through life without those lessons. So when I see these guys, you know, and many instructors, it takes them a long time to get out of it. Maybe they never do, but I see a lot of young instructors who are really hyper-masculine and, you know, fighting is everything. And, you know, they're, they're just hyper-masculine, right? And it's destructive. And I thinking about it's destructive, but who's going to tell them? You got to live through that. You got to see the consequences of that. You've got to feel what that's like for a while before you can realize that there's alternatives that are better for your head, better for others that make you more love, that bring more love to your life. And, you know, 
because you're afraid, right? <laughs> Hypermasculinity is a result of fear, you know? So I think that uh, it just takes some time. So, you know, people used to say, oh, the UFC, it's so violent, you know? And I say, well, no, I disagree. That's where violence belongs. It belongs in the ring, right? It belongs between consenting uh, competitors with a judge in the center and an audience that can appreciate their skill. It doesn't belong in the streets with car bombs and, and where innocent innocents are hurt. Uh, it belongs in the ring. So it's perfectly appropriate to see it there, but it shouldn't manifest itself in the world. What do you think that fear is about? Inadequacy, you know, the inadequacy caused by the human predicament by media, by wanting to be tough, by not wanting to become a victim or, you know, feeling scared or, in a, you know, some in somehow not capable. And I think we all feel that. And so, you know, there's great, great authors out there and great uh, filmmakers who deal with the issues of like, uh, I'm trying to remember Jackson Katz, who did a movie that I saw in college called, uh, Tough guys and guys are spelled G U I S E, uh, as in a disguise. And he draws perfect parallels to modern culture and this phenomenon, phenomena of hypermasculinity. And sometimes it's humorous, like you know the the guy, the Wizard of Oz, you know the big guy who had, projects this big persona, but behind the curtain he's just this little guy, right? And that's telling. And then. In, in the movie, he talks about, well, look, in the 1940s, you had James Cagney, he had this little gun, right? And then you have Eastwood, and his thing is big. And then you have Robocop, you know, and you become the bomb, you know? <laughs> and uh, now we have Transformers, right? It's, some people buy into hypermasculinity, but it's, as he explains so perfectly in his work, it's really because we're scared. It's fear. It's, and it's culturally perpetuated. You know, just look at the language. It doesn't take me much to, you know, to, of, of a little dialogue on Facebook to get to somebody to say, you're just a pussy. You know, it's when did the female genitalia become a sign of weakness, you know? And, uh, but they were, you know, those things are addressed in these, this work. And every instructor, you know, if I were running a convention again, as I've, I did for 15 years in rural Alabama called the Buildvention, it was a alternative to the, the sales conventions that, we, that were being run in the martial arts, I would have Jackson Katz come in if I could and, and give, you know, lectures and, and coach these young instructors to recognize what hypermasculinity is and what the cost of that is and what the alternatives to that are so that they could go out. Because, you know, the thing about martial arts is you only teach what you know. You can't teach what you don't know. You teach what you know. So it's on us to know more to be more aware and to, you know, and jujitsu has really brought that to the forefront that because you can't in jujitsu do what you don't know. You can't fake it, you know, whereas before jujitsu, a lot of us and a lot of my instructors and a lot of people in the martial arts community were teaching things that they didn't really know how to do you know, gun defenses and things that they didn't have any practical experience. They didn't know anything about knife fighting. They never lost fingers, you know, that we were just trying to, I don't know, perpetuate the idea that as a black belt or whatever, you were somehow em empowered with these superhuman qualities and could defend yourself in every, you know, it's not the case. And anybody who does jujitsu knows that 
in the first lesson and in the thousandth lesson, right? A lot of what you're saying reminds me of an Alan Watts quote where I think he was teaching a seminar up in a mountain and then somebody was asking about, oh, is, is Zen up here in the mountain meditating with you? And he's like, the only Zen here is the Zen you bring. And it seems like we could apply that to martial arts. It seems like the takeaway from this is whatever humanity or lack of humanity you bring to martial arts as a student or a teacher is what you brought yourself. Yeah. And maybe martial arts just enhances that. Yeah, I think that's, that sounds like wisdom. The thing about the martial arts, it's not, uh, it's not academic learning. You're not like I sit in these lectures now and I, I often think to myself, you know, in the art class, it's not, it's more about hands on. Okay. Here's the process. Now you go make something, which is, which engages you. But in a lot of classes, you're just sitting on your butt and you're hearing somebody talk. And so there's a certain amount of learning going on, but it's not the same as we do it, right? We're physically involved in, in the nature of conflict, you know, in, in, in grappling or in sparring, you better be present because the cost of not being present is a punch in the face, you know, or you, you're, you're more apt to be present and that training. Uh, that repetitive practice of being present and being physically engaged and emotionally and mentally engaged and dealing with something as stressful as conflict, but staying cool, right? We're fighting and that guy's going to try to choke me, but I tra I'm trained through the process to keep my cool, to keep my higher brain function working. You know, the, I took an anger management class and they talked about flipping your lid and your lid is your higher brain functions and what's left is your limbic, right? So when you flip your lid, you go to fight and flight and you're not thinking, well, what are my choices? You know, <laughs> should I go this way or should I do? But in jujitsu and stressful situations like that, because it can be achieved through any of the martial arts, I think you learn to be in a stressful situation, but remain calmer and remain, retain the ability to use your higher brain functions. And so you can make choices about what you're doing as, a, as opposed to just that two choices. I either, you know, fight or I run. Yeah. I think there's some things about the martial arts and it's even with low quality instructors, like my instructor's got a lot of years under his belt, my first instructor, but when I met him, he was 29. He'd only started martial arts less than, I don't know, five, six, seven years before, maybe. And he had traveled to go to school at UNR and met his met a Korean, another ex student, and they started training together. And this instructor took him under his wing, but he didn't really have much life experience at 29. You know, he didn't really, he just got his brain working. He, you know, he dropped out of school. He was, he loved the martial arts. But despite that, despite the fact that he was still a very young man and didn't have a lot of practical experience, he was able to use the physical activity of the martial arts to open minds, to, to uh, allow people to come in and make a practice of being barefoot, of trying new things, of creating this beautiful posture and this uh, movement. And then the coordination it takes to work with another person or to work as a team. And there's all these things going on in the classroom. You don't have to be a, a road scholar to use this process to open the heart, to open the mind, to empower the individual. So, you know, there are a lot of good instructors who came out of instruct from schools where the instructors weren't really ready for prime time, but nevertheless, 
there's something about this physical activity of the martial arts and the movement. And I remember Jun Ri was telling me one time, he was a famous, for those of you listening, Jun Ri was a famous martial arts teacher, passed away uh, a year ago or so. And he was a friend of Bruce Lee and uh, was one of the first Taekwondo instructors. And many of his students became some of our first uh, full contact martial arts champions like Jeff Smith and he just influenced a whole generation, both technically and, and financially taught business seminars. And he was, he was somebody, he was one of Bush's thousand points of light. And, you know, he was just a phenomenal person. And I happened to be lucky enough to have him as a mentor. And he said, you know, Tom, uh, he had his forms, he called them martial ballet and he, he choreographed them to classical music. And in one, he wrote a poem behind it. It was way ahead of his time. And he said, you know, martial arts is beautiful in all cultures, despite the language, because it's about lines and circles and movement and everybody, they don't have to know anything about the martial arts, but they, the beauty of the movement is what makes it attractive, whether you're from Indonesia or, you know, Sparks, Nevada or whatever. And so there's, there's something about the movement. Now, I think that there's also something about the martial end of it and the, and the history and background of, of those people who protected the village or who taught other people to protect and to be strong, uh, unlike dance or maybe some other things where that's not the inherent traditional trajectory of the, of the learning there's something about that that brings something unique to the martial arts game that also is helpful. But, you know, it's, it's really nice when you have an instructor who can tie it all together. And uh, I have a saying that goes uh, out of the dojo and into the world. I borrowed it from, I stole it from a famous yogi named uh, Sean Korn. She had it off the mat and into the world. And I called her and said, hey, can I use out of the dojo and into the world? And she said, sure, sure, you can use it. So I took it and uh, it means that what we do on the mats has a certain value, but its true value is, is uh, manifested when you take what we practice so rigorously on the mats, the courtesy, the focus, the concentration, the calmness under pressure, the teamwork, the cooperation between partners and all that, and you see it manifest in the lives of your students off the mats. When it, when it manifests itself in the life of students to the benefit of the student, to the people in the student's sphere of influence, to the community the student lives in, and to the world in general, you've just, you've just gone to a whole new level. And the, the measure of a good instructor isn't like when I came up, because my first indicator that I was a good instructor was I could kick everybody's ass in my school. I must be a good instructor. I can take you out, right? And then as I got a little older, it was, oh, look at my students. They're winning all the championships. So look, it reflects on me. I must be a good instructor. They wouldn't be winning if it wasn't. And then I went through another phase where it was like, well, look how big my school is. I mean, I have 800 active students every week. And look at my car I drive and look at our gross revenue. I mean, we're kicking butt. We're one of the biggest schools in the country. I'm obviously a good instructor. And then I got a little older and had more life experience. And I realized the only real measure of an instructor that I could relate to was that I thought it was of value was not my own physical skill, not necessarily the physical skills of my students, not the amount of my income or what watch I could afford to buy. It was how my students took the work we were doing on the mats and used it to the benefit 
of themselves and others in the community. And when I could, when I, I started looking for that, and if I didn't see it, then I started planting the seeds to try to make that happen. Because there's no guarantee. I mean, there's, everybody's unique. So, but I mean, once I said, that's what I'm looking for, that's the measure that I want. Now, where is it manifest? And when I, I, so I started looking deeper at what the students were doing and I asked questions and I dropped hints and, and I, if they did something that I thought was of merit, I'd, I tie in how it was re relevant to what we were practicing on the mats. And, and so I became an instructor of a different sort at that point because I had a different form of measure. And, the, and I'm still promoting that kind of work today that we, the martial arts is a promise-based industry. Uh, we, every school makes the same promises. I mean, if I'm a 20 year old funded by my father and I open a school down the street from a guy who's been teaching or a gal for 40 or 50 years, I'm going to, I'm probably having the same website company build my website. I'm borrowing the same words, whether I have any evidence whatsoever that I'm actually doing that. There's just these words we use in the industry that become, you know, the, the menu of every school, but what we need to do is move towards being an evidence-based industry. Show me the money. If you're an architect or a, an artist using any medium or a graphic designer, you sell your work based on your portfolio. So you show people what you can do. You don't make a bunch of, oh, I can build the best house. You know, you're, I've got the best words. You know, you're going to have to show them. And so I think we would be a far better industry if we could sell our lessons based on what happens to our students as a result of our training and how that affects the world. I think we'd get more parents who recognized our value, more school districts, school boards, uh, leaders in the community who say, oh yeah, well now I can draw the line between, and it's telling about what the instruct, where the instructor's head's at, you know, because when you get to that place where your head's no longer about how big your paycheck is or what kind of car you drive or how big your house is. And you realize, gee, these things don't, I thought they represented a certain quality of life, but you know, they, they're indicative of something, but it's not what I'm, it's not what's really the most fulfilling. You know, there's something else when you get to that place, you know, people can recognize that. And maybe if you know, like, let's visit a hundred websites of martial arts schools and find one, one school that has a portfolio that shows that they actually can empower their students with what they say they can teach on the mat. Give me some examples of how respect is manifested in nine-year-old Johnny's life. Could be something very simple, but that's show me, show me a school in the future. The school of future will sell their lessons based on what they can produce. You'll open the portfolio and the intellect and, a, and capability of the instructor will be clearly evident in what this instructor is doing for his or her community through this army of students that this person teaches that they keep inspired through the movement and the, and the adventure and the fun of the training. Where can people find you? TomCallos.com. This commercial was brought to you by TomCallos.com. Yeah. <laughs> right now I'm attending school at Boise state. I've just, uh, I'm in an entrepreneurial art class. So rather than just listening to the lectures, I said, Oh shoot, I'm just going to start a business. So I started a new company that makes, a beautiful uh, barons out of blown glass. The baron is a tool used in handmaking uh, prints uh, in the traditional Japanese method of, of hokusai and, and some of those famous printmakers. You use a baron to press the paper onto the ink. And so 
uh, I want to get an A in that class, you know, so I started a business doing that. So I'm doing that and I'm still talking to the martial arts community. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of room for growth and improvement, but it, this is, if you're a martial artist and you're listening to this podcast, this is the most exciting time to be in. This is the best time to be a martial artist because you can see the best of the best in the world physically who are doing their things on the mats on YouTube. You can watch them in slow motion. You can replay, you can reach them. You can go to seminars, you know, traveling is not a big deal anymore. <laughs> you, you just have so many resources at your command. And uh, my hats off to those uh, instructors in the world, regardless of style, who are holding themselves to a high standard, who are starting to uh, break down the boundaries of what is martial art and what isn't, you know, because if you look at the top 10 killers of men, women, and children in the world, kicking, punching, and grappling are not on the list, you know, but uh, depression and, and suicide and uh, food-related injuries, point of view, these things cause a lot of destruction and stress. And the martial arts of the future, as is being perpetuated now by many instructors, is going to be a holistic approach to personal protection. And part of that is engaging one's community of participating, not just being there to consume, but to produce and to help and to break down the barriers of us and them. And so I think we were at the beginning of a huge evolution, a renaissance in what we're doing because we have that capability. And it's, you know, I had a friend who went to the Olympics and I asked her one time, I said, of all the uh, athletes who go to Taekwondo in the Olympics, you know, how many make it, you know, who desire to be in it? Cause I, I wanted to be on the Olympic team too, but I just didn't have the talent and cause it's talent, coaching, time, diet, resources, you know, ability to travel and all that and stay injury free. And she said, Oh, I don't know, one or 2%. And I said, so if there were a hundred athletes in Taekwondo, only one or two would do it, right? If they were, there were a hundred people. She said, yeah, that's about, maybe that's right. And I said, well, who would I listen to for advice? The one or two who made it or the 98 that didn't? They're in the martial arts community. It's like that. You got to seek out those people. Uh, It's a small percentage who are really progressive, who are really taking it to the next level. They're easy to get to. They're they're online now. They're they're accessible. You can go to their school if you can train with them and try to there's a lot of noise from the other 98 because when you're in a group of 98, there's two people standing over on the other side of the room. You look among around each other and you go, hell, I don't know anybody who's doing that. Do you? No, I'm not doing it. You do. You know, it's the, it's the majority. It's the minority that we want to seek out like 10 living heroes, you know, find out who your living heroes are in the martial arts community and assess why they're your heroes uh, based on your own development you know sometimes somebody's your hero because they're making more money than anybody you know and that becomes your catalyst for being their student but it's my experience that eventually that kind of wears off and you're looking for something just a little bit deeper perfect tom well we really appreciate your time this is uh this is a lot of good stuff really that's it (laughs) i know it's my honor that i'm even still relevant after all all these years, that's 50 years in the martial arts. And anybody asks my opinion whatsoever, I'm both flattered. And, you know, once in a while you're in a game and somebody throws you the ball and you realize, oh, hell, I've got the ball. I'm supposed to run to that, to, to those things. I, I can't hand it off to anybody. Okay, I better run, man. So when you're given the opportunity to 
uh, as you have given me the opportunity to talk about what I know, then uh, I'm just going to have to step up and act as if, you know, this is my time. But I really appreciate the opportunity. And for all of those of you listening, I appreciate you're getting all the way to the end of this interview if you were able to make it. And I hope that uh, if I can ever be of service to you, don't hesitate to reach out.